Let's turn our Bibles this evening to Luke chapter 23. Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, verses 32 to 43. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on his right hand and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So with the religious establishment engineering and accomplishing their scheme to have him executed, Jesus is now hanging on a cruel Roman cross. His hands and feet having been nailed to that cross. And prior to the ordeal of the cross, he had been subjected, as we know, to all kinds of humiliation, abject humiliation. He had been slapped in the face, spat upon. On the cross, he was coughed at and ridiculed. But of all the humiliation he suffered, there was perhaps none that was more poignant and pronounced than that of his taking his place alongside two criminals who were likewise crucified. And this, of course, was in fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12, which declares that he was numbered with the transgressors. And my friends, included among the transgressors, I would say, and you know this very well, included in that number were you and me, right? We were included among the transgressors. We might not have been involved in heinous criminal activity, at least from a human standpoint, But in the eyes of the thrice holy God, we are deemed transgressors, rebels against God, enemies against him. 
The word of God teaches clearly that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And the sad truth is that outside the forgiving, reconciling grace of God, our guilt is infinitely enormous. And in our reflection this evening, we want to consider the case of these two men who were crucified alongside Jesus, particularly the man who on that very day found peace and favor with God. Whereas in Matthew 27 verses 38 and 44, Matthew identifies these two men as thieves. Likewise, Mark in Mark chapter 15 verse 25, or rather verse 27, identifies them as thieves. Luke, here in this passage, describes them as criminals. A word that refers to those who commit gross misdeeds and serious crimes, very serious crimes. And the fact that Luke identifies them as such suggests that they may have been notoriously hardened career thieves. The kind of thieves who at times resorted to violence, even murdering their victims, robbing them, plundering them, and killing them in the process. And yet, praise be to God, this one particular criminal, we are told, or at least it's suggested from the passage, was wonderfully, gloriously transformed. This passage provides us with some valuable insights as to what it means to be truly saved. And we want to look at this passage this evening, we want to look at these Two men, particularly the man that was converted, and the one phrase that seems to describe the account before us, I would say, is the simplicity of salvation. The simplicity of salvation. You know, ritualists, religionists, those who are given to charting their own salvation, are typically drawn towards corrupting the simple gospel of salvation by faith in Christ. It seems they have an uncanny way of making complex that which the Bible makes clear as regards how one comes into saving relations with God. And if you ask the question, why is that so? Because, you see, prideful, self-righteous humanity loves the idea of going through hoops of crawling on the knees, of self-flagellation, all in the hope of earning favor with God. People like to adhere to this rule and that rule, to this liturgy and that liturgy, so as to have this sense of contribution to their salvation. And this explains why false religions, as we know today, false religions in our time bypass the gospel with its simple call of faith and trust in Christ. In a sermon highlighting the need to simply look to Christ and be saved, C.H. Spurgeon, the great British preacher of the 19th century, addressed his congregation regarding such tenets. He said this, quote, if it would take me seven years, to describe the way of salvation, I'm sure you would all long to hear it. If only one learned doctor could tell the way to heaven, how would he be run after? And if it were in hard words with a few scraps of Latin and Greek, it would be all the better. But it is a simple gospel that we have to preach. It is only look 
Ah, you say, it is that the gospel? I shall not pay any attention to that. But why has God ordered you to do such a simple thing? Just to take down your pride and to show you that he is God, that beside him there is none else. Oh, Mark, how simple the way of salvation is. It is, look, look, look. Four letters and two of them alike. Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. How simple is that way of salvation. There are people today, my friends, there, and an evening like this, they are attending what they call Mass. They are celebrating the Eucharist. They are crucifying Christ all over. They are going through all the hopes in an effort to obtain saving favor with God. And my friends, this account of the dying criminal's conversion we see here in our text speaks to us of the simplicity of salvation in Christ. And what do we learn then of the simplicity of salvation in Christ? First of all, as regards its simplicity, we see that salvation in Christ is preceded by this. It is preceded by a personal awareness and acknowledgement of one's sins. Salvation in Christ is very simple. Salvation in Christ is preceded by a personal awareness and acknowledgement of one's sins. You see, no one is ever saved, no one is saved without first coming to grips with the reality of one's sins before God. And how true was this of the converted criminal? Look at verses 40 and 41 because we notice there that in contrast to the other criminal who was railing against Jesus, cynically demanded, are you not the Christ Save yourself and us, this particular criminal, this particular thief, in a spirit of profound penitence. Here's what he said to the Lord Jesus. He, re- he, he In fact, he said to the other thief, he, he rebuked him saying, verses 40, 41, Do you not fear God since you're in the same sentence and condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing amiss. This man, notice here, he came to an understanding as to how wretched, how sinful he was, how wicked he was. He came face to face with the reality of his wickedness, of his injustice that he had perpetrated against others, how he had robbed them, plundered them, deprived them of their money and other assets, swindling them out of their money, perhaps even committing murder in the process. Let me say here, my friends, if ever you are to be saved, somebody says, well, what must I do to be saved? That's a question that's asked in the Word of God. Well, let me say this. It is clear from the Word of God, and particularly from this passage, that no one can be saved, no one has ever been saved without first coming to an an awareness of one's personal sinfulness before the Holy God of heaven. And the question this evening is this, you would be saved. The question is, do you understand yourself to be a sinner? Do you understand the gravity of your sins before God? 
Somebody says, well, I have not uh, done any heinous crimes. I have not, uh, I have not broken any bank. I have not broken, any, any ch- broken into any church. I have not killed anyone. I have not peddled drugs or anything like that. Let me say this, my friends. The word of God declares all human beings, regardless of how far they have gone in sin, they are under the power of sin. And here's the point. Just one sin, even if you only committed one sin in your entire life, that would be enough not only to qualify you as a sinner but to condemn your soul to a Christless eternity. This man, this particular thief, came to a profound sense of his personal sinfulness before God which he acknowledged there as he was dying. The second thing we notice this as regards the simplicity of salvation we see from this account that the converted criminal, we notice here concerning what he did, that salvation in Christ is procured by trustingly turning to Christ. Salvation in Christ is procured by trustingly turning to Christ. Listen, it's not enough for one to acknowledge one's sin as important as that is, it is not enough merely to acknowledge one's sinfulness, to know that one is a sinner, that is crucial and one must do that, yes. It's not even enough for one to turn from one's sins as crucial as that is. Listen, you could stop, a person could stop doing all the wrong they know. And that, and that would not mean that that person would go to heaven. Merely turning from one's sins, if we might put it like that, can never tur- get one into God's heaven. You see, there has to be not only repentance toward God, but faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Acts chapter 20 and verse 31. And this was precisely what the dying converted criminal did. Right at that moment, as he acknowledged his wrong and his deserved condemnation, notice what he did. He turned to Christ. He turned to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his was a simple act of faith. His was a look of trust in Christ. Note how his faith in Christ was expressed, verse 42. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And our significance here is that the Greek verb translated said is in the imperfect tense, so that the idea of the verse is this. It was not that he, in a one-shot moment, said, remember me when you come into your kingdom, but the idea here is this, that he kept on saying to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What this says to us is that his was an earnest expression of faith in Jesus. His was a most earnest and fervent desire for Jesus to save him. It says to us that he was sincere in his desire to be saved, in his desire to get right with God. You know that a person is truly on the path to salvation when that person not only recognizes his or her sinfulness before a holy God, but that person having come to grips with the gravity of his or her sins 
is earnestly turning to God. Why? Because that one, that person understands the gravity, the seriousness of sin against God. That sin incurs eternal condemnation, eternal punishment, eternal banishment from the presence of God. You see, there on the cross, This thief came to realize that his sins had caught up with him. That he would soon face God in judgment, the God against whom he had wickedly sinned, and that if ever he was to face God in peace and not in wrath, then Jesus was his only help, his only help. That is why his intensity, that is why we have here his earnestness. He kept on saying to Jesus, as it were, pleading to Jesus, pleading with Jesus, remember me, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. One writer comments here, this was nothing less than the plea for forgiveness apart from which no one will enter God's kingdom. He based his request on Christ's prayer that God would forgive those who crucified him, which gave him hope that he too might receive forgiveness. He expressed belief that Jesus is the Savior since he would not have asked for entrance to the kingdom unless he believed Jesus was willing and able to provide it. His was the plea of a broken, penitent, unworthy sinner for grace, mercy, and forgiveness. If you look back at verse 34, when Jesus prayed to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. This thief evidently came to the realization of how much he needed to be forgiven by God. And if Jesus, whom he recognized to be divine, was so gracious in dispensing forgiveness, then certainly Jesus could afford him forgiveness on account of which he could enter the presence of God. That was why he was so earnest. He recognized his wretchedness, his wickedness, his need of dire forgiveness. And my friends, it was his looking to Jesus, his turning to Jesus in faith and truth that brought him into saving favorable relations with God. And here's the marvelous truth about his turning to Christ, about his trustingly turning to Jesus. The truth is this, that he was instantly, right at that very moment, he was made fit to enter the presence of God. Notice Jesus did not say to him, today you shall be paroled. Jesus did not say to him, today you will be on probation. I forgive you, but you are going to go on probation. He did not say to him, today you shall enter a time of penance. And he did not say to this man, today you shall enter purgatory. Let me tell you, that's one of the most damning heresies 
And let me say this, many tonight, many this day, many in this day and age are still believing in that. Can I say this nonsense? Because here's the truth, the word of God teaches that when a person dies, when a person leaves this earth, a person goes to one of two places, either it is that that person enters the presence of God or that person enters a place of torment. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. Instead, this thief heard the comforting, assuring promise of Jesus in verse 43, and he said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And how amazingly surprised this thief must have been to have heard those words coming from our Lord Jesus, such gracious words. You see, he had in mind the idea that he, if at all possible, would enter that kingdom which would be in the distant future, the eschatological kingdom, that kingdom of Christ which is to be established in the future. Here it was, Jesus assured him that not of some future point, not at some future point, but on that very day, he would be with him in paradise. You know, cults today have a field day. They run with this verse to teach the idea of what they call soul sleep. It's the idea that When a person leaves this life, when the breath leaves the body, the person, as it were, just goes into non-existence, ceases to exist. That person is not conscious. And they erroneously read this verse by pausing after the word today. So what they have Jesus saying is this. Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. Instead of what it should actually be, where Jesus said, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. You see, the point of Jesus' statement was that he, the dying criminal, would be with him in paradise, not in the distant future, but on that very day, on that very day, he received such promise, such assurance from Jesus. And clearly this debunks the idea of the heresy known as soul sleep, the idea that there is no conscious existence after death. Here's the point. As I said earlier, the fact is at death, Every single human being, saved or unsaved, goes to one of two places where they are consciously existing. Some people, you will hear them say, boy, I just want to die and end it. Let's listen. It doesn't end there. It doesn't end at death. One enters bliss in the presence of God at death. Or one enters into a state of torment away from the presence of God. The redeemed the word of God teaches 
die in the Lord. We see that in Revelation chapter 14, verse 13, Luke chapter 20, verse 38 teaches that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You remember Jesus quoted that passage back in Genesis, I'm the God of the living. Jesus quoted that passage to refute the notion, to refute the teaching, to refute the claim of the Sadducees that there is no resurrection. And Jesus said to them, have you not read the scriptures? And for the believer in Christ, the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8 that to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. As such, Jesus' words of assurance to this dying, penitent, believing criminal was this. Today, right at this very day, he was saying, you will be with me in paradise. Not tomorrow, not five years from now, not at some distant future, some point in the distant future. But today, right this very day, you are going to be with me in paradise. What wonderful words from the lips of the Lord Jesus. We see in this verse, you know, we could spend a whole night just on this statement tonight. Today you will be with me in paradise. What glorious words this thief heard coming from the lips of the Lord Jesus. In these words, we have, first of all, the veracity or truthfulness of the promise. Because notice what Jesus did as he made this promise, he began by saying, truly. The dying thief could bank on the truthfulness and integrity of Christ's word. Why? Because Christ is the very Amen of God. For all the promises of God in him are yes and amen. They are not yes and no, not maybe, not perhaps. The veracity of the promise, truly. And that is why, my friends, you and I, we can lay our heads comfortably on our pillows. Why? Because we have an assured salvation that is not based on how we feel, but is based on the integrity, the trustworthiness, the truthfulness of the word of God. And then we have the authority of the promise. Notice the authority of the promise. Notice what Jesus said, I say to you. Who is speaking? This is Jesus, the sovereign Lord. This is Jesus, the one whose every word is invested with power. And then will you notice thirdly, the immediacy of the promise, the immediacy of the promise, as I said, not tomorrow, not sometime in the distant future, but immediately upon faith and trust in me, Jesus was saying to this man, to this criminal, this very day, your salvation will take effect. And then how about this, the certainty of the promise. The certainty of the promise, you will, you will be with me. Somebody says it's too presumptuous for us. We, when, we, when we say we know we are saved, we are being presumptuous. No. It is because the word of God assures us with all certitude, with all 
certainty, the fact we can know we are saved. The word of God says, 1 John 5, verse 13, These things have I written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may what? know that you have eternal life. Our Lord Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, walk to you, he who hears my word and believes on him that sent me has eternal life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. The certainty of the promise of salvation. And then we have in this promise of Jesus to this dying criminal, we have not only the veracity of the promise, the authority of the promise, the immediacy of the promise, and the certainty of the promise, but notice we have the felicity of the promise. The felicity in the promise. Here's what Jesus said. With me in paradise. In paradise. And so it was here, there in paradise with Jesus, the dying converted thief was to be on that very day Jesus made this promise to him. As far as his salvation was concerned, the deal was done. He needed nothing more to be done for him, in him, or with him, as one writer suggests. His salvation was complete. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. Why was his salvation so complete? Because, you see, horribly wicked and sinful as he was. His sins were being born by Jesus even as Jesus suffered and died on the cross. My friends, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the point is for any who would be saved, for any who would come into the saving grace of God, salvation is as instant and com as complete as that. No, there's no probation, there's no purgatory, there is no passage of time instantly. The moment one trusts in Christ, the moment one turns to Christ, one enters into saving, favorable relations with God. The songwriter expressed this truth when he expressed these words, when he penned these words. He says this, born of the Spirit with life from above, into God's family divine, justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made when as a sinner I came, took of the offer of grace he did proffer. He saved me, oh, praise his dear name. Instantly, immediately, one comes into saving favor with God. Talk about the simplicity of salvation. It's not complicated. You see, theologians love to complicate salvation. In fact, they complicate it in two ways. You have, first of all, what is easy believism, and then people challenge easy believism. And then what do we have? If it's not easy believism, hard believism. As the late Adrian Rogers used to say, hard believism. In other words, you never know when you are saved. 
Let me say this, my friends. A person, the moment he or she looks to Christ, recognizes his or her sins, places faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone, the transaction is complete, the transaction is immediate, the transaction is lasting forever and ever. That is the salvation in Christ. That is the simplicity of salvation. As we have seen from this account of the dying criminal salvation in Christ, number one is preceded by a personal awareness and acknowledgement of one's sins. And then salvation in Christ is procured by trustingly turning to Christ. The dying thief, the dying criminal exercised saving faith in Christ. And the question, of course, is what were the elements, what were the constituent elements of his faith, the faith by which he was saved? And this is very important because people today say, well, I have faith in God, I have faith in Christ, but what does that mean? What were the elements of this man's faith? Notice, first of all, look at verse 40. Notice that his faith, number one, moved him to fear God. His faith moved him to fear God. He rebuked the other thief, the other criminal, and he said, Do you not fear God? Do you not fear God? How can a person ever be saved without coming to grips with the God with whom we have to do is a fearsome and holy, wrathful God who judges sin. This man was at his dying last. And he came face to face, not only with the fact that he was a wretched sinner, a wicked sinner at that, but he came to the realization that there is a God to be feared. A God to be feared. Notice secondly, as regards his faith, though he referred to Jesus as man, verse 41, he evidently believed that Jesus was more than a man. He implicitly affirmed the deity of Christ. He implicitly held to the idea that Jesus was divine. Notice, whereas the other criminal belittled the fact that Jesus was the Christ. Verse 49, the converted criminal came to a right attitude toward Jesus, recognizing him as such. He recognized that this Jesus was not merely human this Jesus was God. He was the Christ of God. He was the Messiah. And then notice thirdly, he clearly believed in Jesus' lordship. He clearly believed in Jesus' lordship, the fact that he was a king. Because notice what he said to Jesus. It's very simple. He said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into what? Your kingdom. You can't have a kingdom without a king. This man recognized not only that Jesus was divine, he recognized that Jesus was a sovereign Lord with a kingdom which he would establish in the future. Hence he asked Jesus, he pleaded with Jesus as it were, Lord Jesus, remember me when you come 
into your kingdom. I want to wrap this up by leaving with you three lessons we can take away from this account. And the first is this. No one has gone so far and so deep in sin that the grace of God cannot save, that the power of God cannot redeem. No one has gone so far in sin that the grace of God cannot save, that the power of God cannot redeem. And surely the lesson here for us is that we must never, we must never write off anyone as being outside the reach of God's saving grace. Luke says that this man, in fact these two men, Whereas Matthew and Mark says they were thieves. Luke says they were criminals, suggesting there that they were hardened career criminals. Violent criminals. People who not only robbed and plundered, but even murdered and maimed in the process. And yet, this particular criminal turned to Jesus and was saved. Regardless of how wretched and sinful they may be, regardless of how callous and hard-hearted they may be toward the gospel, we must never despair at the thought of their ever coming to Christ. Remember what the Apostle Paul says about the gospel? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the what? The power, the dynamite, the dunamis of God to salvation to what? To who? To everyone who believes. And Paul was such a person. Paul, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, says, Oh, before, he was a vile person. He was a blasphemer. He was a violent pers- person, a persecutor of the church of God. And yet God wonderfully, gloriously, graciously transformed him, saved him. We must never cease praying. We must never cease sharing the gospel. The fact is, God is able to save even the most wretched, even the basis of most base of sinners. Why? Because nothing shall be impossible with God, as the scripture says, Luke chapter 1 and verse 37. Someone asked this question. Well, what if they have become so hardened? And so resistant to the Spirit of God that God has given them over to reprobation. As for example in Romans chapter 1, 24, 26. People have that concern sometimes. They say, you don't know who I'm dealing with. He? She? No, 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 no. God has given up. No, 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 no. The question is, if God has done that, there's no way you and I can determine that. And the word of God tells us that ours is the responsibility to what? To sow the seed, to share the gospel, to pray for them, to wait on God, to trust God for their salvation. Our responsibility after we have witnessed to them is to simply continue to pray for them, trusting God to grant them repentance. 2 Timothy 2 verses 25-26 leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. That's why they're not saved, you know. Here's the second lesson we learn from this passage. The second lesson we learn from this passage this evening is this. The saving grace of God extends 
even to the closing moments of one's life. The saving grace of God extends even to the closing moment of one's life. The thief, this thief was in the closing stages of his life, and yet he confessed his sinfulness and turned to Christ. And right in his dying moment, this man was on his way to death. Right in his dying moment, he turned to Christ, and Christ received him. Christ welcomed him. Christ saved him. So like the thief on the cross, one can even on one's deathbed come to know the saving, forgiving grace of God in Christ. But let me give this warning. Because somebody is going to say, well, you know, I am not ready to trust Christ. I'm not ready to receive Christ. I have time. At least I have up to when I'm on my deathbed. You hear people suggest that. And the fact is, my friends, the fact that God can save one even on a deathbed does not give one the go-ahead to reject the gospel, refusing to repent, refusing to trust Christ, hoping to repent and turn to Christ on one's deathbed. Let me say this, that's the height of folly. That's the height of folly to be trusting in a deathbed repentance. And here's why it's, it's folly. First of all, you have no guarantee. One has no guarantee that in the closing moments of one's life, one will be on a deathbed. Listen, people die in an instant in a car accident, in some tragic event. This past week, we heard of the shooting in New York on the subway. People could have died. And one never knows where or how one will die. Why? Because one's moment to die can be any moment. You could contract some illness and die in a matter of hours. You don't know, you have no guarantee that you'll ever have time in the future to come to Christ and to be saved. That is why Proverbs chapter 29 verse 1 warns, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck shall suddenly be cut off, and that without remedy, without healing. And the second thing you need to understand, my friends, is that no one can choose when one will come to Christ. No one can come to Christ that will. Somebody says, well, I'm going to become a Christian. I'm going to become a Christian after I get married, after I finish college. After the children have grown up and left home, when I don't have to go on bad, <laughs> I will have time to trust Christ. And the reason it's folly to think that way, because here's what one needs to understand. It is God who grants repentance. It is God who grants repentance. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 25, Acts chapter 5, verse 31, make that very clear. God is the author of salvation. God is the one who gives repentance. So one cannot repent at will. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 teaches that salvation is not of our doing, that it's the gift of God, not of the result of work, so that no one may boast. That is why the time to come and be saved is now. 
Second Corinthians 6 verse 2, Behold, now is the favor of the time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 and 8, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. And then I think this is perhaps the most sobering lesson for this evening, which is this. Thirdly, proximity to the gospel and the things of God is no guarantee that one will be saved. Proximity to the gospel, being in a Christian family, hearing the gospel on Christian radio, watching gospel programs on Christian television, being in church Sunday after Sunday, hearing the gospel is no guarantee that one will be saved. Here's the point. Here were two men on either side of Jesus. Both of them were dying and headed for eternity. Both of them were in the presence of Jesus. The man on the left, he recognized Jesus as a Christ, but was unbelieving concerning his ability to save. He was skeptical. He scoffed. He simply scoffed. Incidentally, Matthew chapter 27, verse 32, shows that the converted thief, the converted criminal, was doing the same thing. But here's what happened. He changed. He was transformed right in the midst of his suffering. As he looked to Christ, he became changed. He was different. The man on the right in humble penitential fear, recognized the justice of his punishment. The man on the left settled in his unbelief and said nothing more. The man on the right not only went on to acknowledge Jesus' lordship and coming kingdom, but he asked Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Proximity to the gospel and the things of God is no guarantee that one will be saved. The man on the left, ended up lost. The man on the right ended up in paradise with Christ. The late D.L. Moody said it like this, quote, from the side of Jesus Christ, one man may go to heaven, another to hell. What a statement. From the side of Jesus Christ, one may go to heaven, another to hell. That's a sobering, scary thought, you know. It's a sobering, scary thought to think that in churches where the gospel is preached week after week, faithfully preached week after week, there are people who can be sitting under the sound of the gospel, who can be hearing the truth of the gospel, hearing that Christ died, and yet never come to Christ, never were saved, and yet end up in a Christless eternity. Listen, it is not merely hearing the gospel. It is not being, it's not, not merely being exposed to the gospel. It's not just being religious. It is coming to Christ. It is coming to him in faith. At the end of the day, our text this evening could be seen as the account of two men, two ways, and two destinies. The question in closing is, on which side of the cross are you? Are you on the right or are you on the left? 
Have you in repentance toward God, embraced by faith, the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? The question is, if not, why not? Because here's the point. Christ, and faith in Christ, is the determinant factor, determining factor, that relates to where one will spend eternity. Without Christ, one is lost. Without Christ, one is empty. Without Christ, one is bankrupt. It's not religion. It's not doing good. It's not turning from bad behavior. It's not turning over a new leaf. It is trusting Christ. It is turning to Christ. And the question is, do you know yourself to have done that? Somebody says, why are you preaching this this evening? Aren't we all believers in Christ? Yes, but we need to hear the gospel again and again and again and again and again. Why? Because some people are very near, yet they are so far. The man on the right was near to Jesus. The man on the left was near to Jesus. The man on the right was lost. The man on the left. The man on the right... (laughs) was wonderfully saved, wonderfully transformed. May God grant that we might be found on the right side of the cross for his name's sake. Amen.